If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The text this morning is verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 10, verses, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, excuse me. This is the word of God to the people of God. So hear the word. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves or of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to that which is most holy. The author of Scripture, the one who has given it to us, and the Scriptures itself. This is God speaking to his people and perhaps to others who are still searching today. May we hear his word. May the spirit impact us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, I could say that this one is one of my favorite books in the Bible, but they really are all my favorite books. All 66 books, they're given to us by the Holy Spirit as he moved men of old to write these letters for us. And so I love this one in particular, but, and I love that first chapter because as you go to the first chapter, you don't necessarily have to look now, but you see all the spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. All those spiritual blessings are marvelous. He has called us from before the foundations of the world. He has redeemed us by the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has elected us from before the foundations of the world. Our names were written in the book of life 
before we were even created. So he's redeemed us. He's adopted us as sons and daughters of the living God. He has done all those things. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment on our inheritance. It's a marvelous set of, of blessings that God has poured out on us. And there are many more. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He goes on, and I find it rather refreshing too because he prays here. He prays for the things that he prayed for himself in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, you know, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. And now Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, he says these things. He says, I want you to know God, not just theologically, not just intellectually, but I want you to know him personally. I want your heart to, in a sense, race with delight in, in terms of knowing God and reading his word and, and doing what he has called us to do. He says, I want you to know God. I want you to understand your calling in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand the glorious inheritance that God has given you now, and there is more to come when Jesus Christ comes again for his people. And lastly, he says, I want you to know the power that is in you because of Christ Jesus. Amazing. First chapter of Ephesians. What a wonderful testimony. And then we come to chapter 2, and it's like, wow, what happened? But you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once lived and walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom were all what world we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath and like the rest of mankind. Wow, what a change. That is the picture of the unregenerate. That's the picture of the person that has not been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And it's a horrible picture. It's a horrible picture for us to look at and for because at one time that described us. It described us. It described me. I was in my 20s when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember we were invited to go to a church. It was a uh, Easter sunrise service, 1976. And we were invited by a German lady and her husband, Jerry. Uh, her name was Ilta, invited us to go to the church there. And uh, that day, we heard a message. I can't tell you what that message was. As I look back, I know it had to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what impressed me about that was the people in that church. They seemed to really care about us. And so there was an attraction for us. We returned to the church. And for several months, we heard expository preaching. And in the preaching, the pastor often talked about sin. In fact, he was charged too often about speaking too much about sin. 
But I remember he made an appointment with my wife and I and came out to our house one Monday night, he and one of the ruling elders. And he stayed with us and he answered my little silly objections. What about those people over there? What about those over there? And he kept coming back and he would say, Doug, what is in your heart? What about you? What is your relationship with the living God who created all things out of nothing? What is your relationship? And finally, it must have been about midnight. He had answered all my little silly objections. And he told me and told us about this God, this great and awesome God, this powerful God. He told me and my wife to look at our hearts because I would have said at one time, I'm a pretty good old guy. But when I measure myself against the commands of God, against the Ten Commandments, I have not only broken one, I have broken them all. I understood for the first time that night because the only way I think that a person can understand the incarnation and the coming of Jesus Christ and receive him, they must, in a sense, be broken of their own attitudes and understanding of who they are. I thought I was good, but in the eyes of God, I was a rebel heading toward that, on that broad road that leads toward destruction. But that night, I heard not only about God and also my own sin, but I heard about the coming of Jesus Christ to take my sins upon him and to place his righteousness upon me. That night, I bent my knee, both of us bent our knees, and we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we began doing what Paul said in, not Ephesians, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we became new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old things, no longer the broad road leading toward destruction, but we were on the road, narrow road that leads toward life. That night, that gospel, the only true gospel, changed my life and my wife's life, and we have been on the narrow road that leads to life and serving the King of kings and Lord of lords with great delight. Great delight. There's a... And that's the only way. Is to see yourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And a God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten Son to die for us. And also to live for us. There's a little phrase that we find here at the end of verse 4. Two words. I don't know if you've uh, studied that. I sent some out. Hopefully some received it. But two words, very important. This is an adversity. But God. That, that, uh, those two words are found throughout the scriptures, and I want to refer to a couple of them. Because certainly this is an adversity that we need to hear and need to remember as we walk through our life in Christ. Because what, what it shows us is that God has taken the initiative, a sovereign action, 
through this adversity to, to help us understand life and how to live out our life to the glory of God. I, I'm not asking you to turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, but I think most of you probably know the story of Genesis 50, verse 20. It has to do with Joseph. Joseph was a, a son of Jacob, one of the sons, and uh, jo Joseph was given a, a very lovely multicolored uh, robe by his father. And his brothers became jealous of that particular robe. And not only were they jealous of that, but they also uh, heard a, uh, a, an experience that Joseph had in his dreams where he saw his brothers kneeling down before him. So they became rather jealous of their brother, and some of them wanted to kill Joseph. But they didn't. They finally sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt at a very, uh, not necessarily at first a high position, but he was working with Potiphar. And on one occasion, or maybe on two occasions, Potiphar's wife came on to him. And yet Joseph had the strength because he did not want to go against the commands of God to flee from that. But all of a sudden, Potiphar found out that there was something going on there. And Joseph was put in jail. Ultimately, he had dreams that, that he could interpret to. Uh, he had dreams. Pharaoh had dreams, and he interpreted those dreams for Pharaoh. And ultimately, he was raised to a very high-level position in Egypt. Well, there's a famine where his brothers and his father live, and they come to Egypt for grain, and Joseph sees them. He sees them. They don't recognize him, but ultimately, he will reveal himself to him, and his brothers will be kind of taken, you imagine, by seeing him, because they had sold him into slavery. They didn't like him anymore. He didn't love, they didn't love him anymore. They wanted to kill him. All these things happened, and he was giving them grain for the family, and he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but these two words, but God meant it for good. What happened? What did he do? What did Joseph do? By being in charge of the grain, he saved thousands of lives. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You find that, but God, in other places too. I find it particularly in, in uh, Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about it, and it gives me a, a great deal of comfort as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29, he says, God has not chosen uh, the wise of the world. God has not chosen the influential of the world. God has not chosen, chosen the noble of the word, world, but God chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the, the strength, the strong. He chose the lowly as well. So God chose the weak, he chose the foolish. He chose others that are not consequential. They're not noblemen. They're not in key influential positions. They're not wise. But he chooses the foolish of the world to confound the wise of the world, at least those who think that they are wise. And so that gave me a lot of comfort because 
at my stage in life when I was converted, I was not very wise. I maybe had known some things, but there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. But God chooses the wise to serve him. He gives them what they need to serve him. In fact, uh, look at the, uh, some of his disciples. Who are they? They're fishermen. They're not educated. They don't have a PhD or anything like that. They're fishermen. One is a tax collector. These are not the cream of the society at that time. But God chose them. And he used them. He empowered them. He gave them his Holy Spirit. And he sent them out and he said, go and make disciples of men. You're no longer fishermen. But you're a fisherman of men. I hope that gives you some kind of comfort in terms of how God uses us. But God uses the people that he calls. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a lot of people perhaps are called ignorant, but not the child of God any longer. Because the scriptures teach us in 1 Corinthians 2, but God, he revealed the truth to us by his Holy Spirit. He did not leave us in a state of ignorance. We are not ignorant people. In fact, there are people who are quite knowledgeable, but they don't have wisdom because they don't know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowing him, is knowledge, and he gives us the ability to articulate that knowledge into wisdom so that we can make the difference, we can tell the difference between right and wrong, and we're fear filled by the Holy Spirit that we may choose right over wrong. So, but God, again, has revealed the truth to us. Ah, 66 books of truth. Read it, study it, apply it, live it to the glory of God. And there's another one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I think this probably certainly speaks to everyone, speaks to me, and it has spoken to me for a long period of time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what he says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But, but, when you are tempted, he will provide a way out of your temptation and you're able to stand up under it. Well, there's so many things in the world to tempt us today. The beauty of creation, the beauty of, of, of positions of authority, the beauty of, of, of wealth and how people use their wealth, going on trips around the world and all those sorts of things. And the beauty of, of, of various, uh, I think particularly of men who are actually very uh, oriented in terms of seeing things, uh, the beauty of, of God's creation in terms of women oftentimes dealing and spending a lot of time on that and being led astray as a result of that. So God has provided a way of escape for us. But God. But God. And after all, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, 
What did he do? Three temptations. Three. And each time, he responded by a quote from his Bible, the Old Testament. And that's why it's important for us to, to memorize the Word of God. Memorize this particular passage. And every time your temptation, whatever that temptation may be, recite the Word of God. God will never let you go beyond that. But you must hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. And the last one is Romans 5.8. The last one that I have. There are others. And you may want to research that on your own. But at one time we were powerless and ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Who is this God? This is a God who looks down at the lowly. This is a God that uh, the world doesn't have much confidence in or hope for. He looks down upon the helpless and, and also the weak. And what does he do? He sends his son Jesus Christ to die for some of them. He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within him. He gives us Romans chapter 8 telling us that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. He is a great God who is worthy of our worship. But God. That's a phrase that we need to remember. Perhaps every day. In fact, you, you go to verse 4, what does it say there? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith in Christ Jesus. I, uh, yeah, I, I love that, that passage. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the wrath of God. Strangers to the covenant promises. Without God and without hope in this world. But God who is rich in mercy in love has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Are you alive today? Are you alive? Is your heart beating for the things of God? Has your mind been transformed where you think about the things of God and not the things of this world so much? We still have to live in this world, but we're not to think so much of the world as, as so many people do. But think the things of God. Think the Word of God. Think the law of God. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, live accordingly. is the means of salvation? How does he save us? 
four words. He made us alive. That's it. We were dead. Spiritually dead. But he made us alive. The account of in John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. His sisters Mary and Martha say that Jesus needs to hear about that and he needs to come. They know that he is, has healed people. He's even raised people from the dead and we're going to see that in just a minute. But, but they want Jesus to come. Jesus is not in a hurry to get there. And when they see him coming, Mary and Martha go out and say, well, you know, he's dead. He's buried. If you'd only been here, Jesus. If you'd only been here. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, even though he shall perish, he will live again. That's not the whole I am saying there, but that's one of the great I am sayings of Jesus Christ. And then we see Jesus Christ going out to the grave, to the stone, and Jesus is weeping there. Sometimes we, we don't think it's appropriate to weep, especially men. We, we don't weep, but Jesus weeps. His friend is dead, and he's weeping. And when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen to them in A.D. 70 unless they turn to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus weeps for his, his friend Lazarus and he stands before the grave and he says, Lazarus, come forth. A stone is rolled away and Lazarus comes. He's alive. He was a dead. He was dead, and now he is alive. I don't know. There may be some spiritually dead people in this congregation today. No doubt, around the world there are spiritually dead people, and they're not necessarily in a tomb, but in a spiritual tomb, I guess you might say. But there's only one thing that will make them come out of that tomb, out of their spiritual rebellion against God, out of their hatred for him, there's only one thing that will bring them out and save them, and that is this. They must hear the good news of the gospel. That good news is declared for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ, the scriptures, the scriptures tell us that our sins according to the scriptures was taken care of by Christ, that Christ died, and on the third day, as the Spirit applies the truth to our hearts, we are raised to newness of life. As the scriptures are given to us, as the gospel is shared with us, as the work of Christ is communicated to us, as the Spirit breaks down our hard heart, and, and we're able to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. There's one other thing I'd like to say about this particular point. 
is that Paul gives us three verbs that tell us that we are in Christ. Verses 5 and 6, if you want to look at that quickly. He made us alive together with Christ. He caused us to be with him. He raised us in him to be with him. And in verse 6, he made us sit with him in the heavenly places. What do we see here? What is he teaching us here in these three verbs, in these two verses? He's teaching us that we have union with Jesus Christ. Think about that. Most of us oftentimes don't have a very high view of themselves, and we shouldn't. Because sometimes we're knocked off of our, our ladder if we think too highly of ourselves. But what he, find, what he tells us here is that we are in union with Christ, that we are members of his new society, the church. And the one thing that we need to understand, what matters, what makes the church distinctive, is the new solidarity that we have as a people who are in Christ. This particular phrase, in Christ, is used 164 times by the Apostle Paul. And this is what he says in Ephesians 1. You were chosen in him. In Ephesians 1, 7, you were redeemed in Christ. In Galatians 2, 17, you were justified in his, uh, you were justified in him and declared not guilty. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, you were sanctified in him. 1 Corinthians 1, 5, you were enriched in every way in him. It is always in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. I guess what we need to do is show it. Show it. Model Christ as much as you can, as much as we can. How are we united to Christ? By faith. It's a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. You may think, and some people may think, they can work themselves into the kingdom. They may do all these grand things. They may be philanthropic and give a lot of money. They may raise money for charity or build places for uh, an access for hospitals, whatever the case may be. All those good works do not make any difference to God. They're, they're, in terms of eternity. It doesn't make any difference. We cannot work ourselves into heaven. It is only by the gift of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ that we enter into the kingdom of God and we remain there until he carries us into glory with him. The last thing I want to say, well, there's a couple of things. The reason he saves us, that's in the scriptures too, in the text. The first one is that he loves us. You know, it was hard for me to understand that anyone would love me outside of my family. You know where I found love outside of my family? 
in the church. In the church. I know sometimes people have a, some bad experiences in the church. Uh, I really haven't. I've served three churches. I loved all the people in those churches. But God loves us. C.S. Lewis, this is what he wrote. And I've got small print, so I will try to read it. This is how he describes love. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creations in order that he may love and perfect them. He created the universe already for seeing everything. No tenses involved with God. The buzzing cloud of fleas about the cross of Christ, the flayed bag pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through his hands and the nerves, the repeated torture of his back and arms as it at times, after a time, as he breathed, would hitch up as it were, and the pain would be excruciating. Herein is love. That is the diagram of love himself, the mentor of all, the inventor of all loves. It's not a phileo love. It's not a brotherly love. It's not a, it's not a, uh, uh, agape love. It is a love that goes into a whole different realm. The category of God's love for us shown in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no word to describe it other than God sent his only son to love us, to die for us, to live for us, to promise to come again to receive us, to take us where he is, that we might gather around the throne of God, worshiping him. Such love. I would die for my family in a moment. I believe in God's power. I would die for the church in a moment. But I'm pretty sure, and I did have a, I did have a friend over in Southeast Asia that we were close to, close with. I believe I would have died for John. But God died for all of his people, all of them, the weak, the lowly, people that others didn't even care about. And he brought them into his family. And he keeps them. They never leave. Who would want to leave and go back to the world as it is? There's a, another reason. Well, there's several reasons. His love, his mercy, and mercy is, is loving those who are down and out and helpless. And there's grace. It's God's unmerited favor to show love to others and his kindness. But there's another kind of love that he mentions here, another kind of reason why he loves. And it's this, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. What does that mean? 
and ages to come that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And I would say to you, if you're a Christian today, he is looking at you and he is, he is enjoying the fact that you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that you are a part of his family. He probably looks at Martin Luther and says, over 500 years ago, look, by God's grace, I saved him. Look what Martin Luther has done. Look what John Calvin has done. Look what John Knox has done. Look at all these people. These are trophies of the grace of God. And we can see them. We can read about them. We can learn from them. God is glorified. We, his people, are his trophies in the best sense of the word. Salvation is the gift of God. And Jesus paid the price. The last thing, and I'll read this too. It's a comment that I really like. It comes from Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the pastors of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Well-known books written by him. He wrote some books. So 10th Presbyterian Church has a, a wealth of former uh, uh, great pastors and theologians. But Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this. He tells the story of Henry Morehouse, a social worker in London last century. A little girl fell and broke a pitcher or a jar of milk. She was afraid her mommy would spank her when she got home and she was crying. So he, Morehouse, went out and bought another container for milk and brought it to her filled with milk. As a little girl arrived at home and started to enter the door, he asked her, will your mother spank you now? And the little girl said, oh no, this container or this pitcher of milk is much better than the old one. In a sense, that's a picture of us. I'll say for myself, for 20 years plus old. And now, I'm filled with the Spirit of God, and I'm alive. I trust that is your case as well. Because Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new because of Christ. And only because of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, we have dealt, I believe, with one of the most important lessons that a person will ever hear. A lesson and the only lesson that will change life for eternity. We may hear some good lessons in this world, some things that we want to learn and, and grow in and, and understand in, uh, we want to understand better. 
But Lord, this is the message. This is the message, and you know it. This is the message that will change a person's life forever. Lord, would you be pleased to work in the hearts of people around the globe this day that hears the gospel for the first time, perhaps, and turns their life by the grace of God as they're irresistibly drawn into the Savior. May they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I would pray, and I trust the leaders of this church would pray, if there are those here today who do not know Jesus, we pray that in your providence and your great love and your mercy and your kindness that they will not leave this place without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, work. Work in us. Work in us. Don't give up on us. Use us till our days are complete and you call us home. Would you hear our prayers in the name of Jesus?